0: Father, you are worthy of all of the time and attention that your people can give to you. You're worthy of our praise and our adoration. You are worthy of our focus. And we pray that in the study of your word and thinking through the things that your word presents to us this morning, that our hearts might be lifted as a result of our study to praise you and to obey you. We pray for grace in our understanding and that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide and make your word our focus and your glory our everlasting concern. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 20. Please turn to John chapter 20. We'll read the first 10 verses. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. For the last couple of weeks we've been, uh, I've been slowly and methodically and meticulously reconstructing the events that surrounded the happenings of the tomb on the resurrection morning. I've been doing this uh, probably slower than many of you would like in order to create in our minds at least a, a series of events, a chronology of things that happened that help sort of put everything, a, a framework, to create a framework into which we can put all of the details of the four Gospels and what they say regarding what happened on the res, around the resurrection of Christ. And I'm hoping that you're following what is happening and how all of these details uh, are coming together. I asked somebody this last week, is it at all intelligible? Am I going too slow, too fast? uh what is your assessment and they said they thought it was was their understanding it but he said i think it would be helpful if you had something in written form sort of a a sheet or an insert that would sort of lay all of this out so that we could follow along and sort of put things in uh into that flow and get uh, something visual so i think what i'm going to do in the next couple of months uh maybe by next month but certainly don't expect it by next week but by next month uh for the newsletter have an article with a lot of this stuff written up in it uh, particularly the chronology and how all of the different differences in the Gospels are harmonized together. And that would give us something to have before us into which we can fit all of this and would help uh, kind of uh, clear up a lot of what we typically refer to as the alleged contradictions, because we have seen that people allege that there are all kinds of differences and contradictions. They say the Gospels are irreconcilably different. Uh, they're so different as to undermine the authenticity of the New Testament itself. Uh, John's record is radically different than Matthew and Mark's record, and Luke is different than uh, Mark and Matthew and, and et cetera. And what I've been trying to do is to show you that they're not irreconcilably at odds at all. They are four complementary, independent accounts of the events that happened, and they're quite uh, easily reconciled, comparatively speaking. It's not, it's not impossible to do. It's not easy, I shouldn't say. Easy's not the word, but it can be done. It takes some time and some thinking, but reconciling the differences in the Gospels can be done. And in fact, there are more than one way of reconciling them. And we saw last week that the Gospels do present to us completely contradictory and irreconcilable accounts if we assume that all of the women traveled together to the tomb, arrived together at the tomb, and stayed with each other at the tomb and around the tomb. Those are the three assumptions that have to be made. If you assume those things, then yes, the Gospels are filled with concerning the resurrection accounts with irreconcilable discrepancies. But those assumptions are not justified. And I hope I have been able to show you that that is not exactly what happened. We have no reason to think that all of these women travel together. We certainly have no reason to think that all of these women necessarily arrive together. And we are completely justified to reject the assumption that all of the women stayed together. Because we have in John 20, verses 1 and 2, the record that Mary Magdalene, after she came to the tomb, before seeing the angels and going into the tomb, she actually went back into Jerusalem to talk to Peter and John. The other women stayed at the tomb. So people who read John's account of what happened to Mary Magdalene, and then read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of what happened to the women at the tomb, they say, these are irreconcilably contradictory. It sounds like they're describing two entirely different events. Well, guess what? They are describing two entirely different events. The events surrounding Mary Magdalene after she went into Jerusalem to tell Peter and John. And the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe the events that surrounded the women who stayed at the tomb. So we're in John 20. We got through the end of verse 2 last week. Uh, that seemed a bit slow, but we're going to be picking up the pace considerably. and We're going to get all the way through the end of verse 10 today. We're going to be looking at what Peter and John saw and in John's account of his eyewitness experience of the empty tomb on that Sunday morning. So we're going to be picking it up at verse three now to review, to review. And I will try to make this too uh, too slow or disinterested for those of you who have already been here for all of this to review. The women came on that Sunday morning to the tomb. And when they got there, they saw two things. They saw the stone had been rolled away. And they saw that the soldiers were not there. Because there's no record in any of the four Gospels that the women saw the soldiers at the tomb. So the soldiers had already left. The stone had been rolled away, not just from the entrance. But remember, the wording of the New Testament is that the stone had been rolled away from the sepulcher. It was a distance, some distance between the stone and the grave itself, the sepulcher itself. At that moment, Mary Magdalene left and went in to tell Peter and John. That's John 20, 1-2. The other Gospels record what happened with the other women. The other women... Uh, Mary, well I won't list them all but the other four women at least uh, one of which was Mary the mother of James and another Mary and an unnamed lady at Siloam those, there you, I named it for you. said I wasn't going to but I did. Those women stayed at the tomb and at the tomb while Mary Magdalene ran in to tell Peter and John that is when they decided to investigate the tomb and they went inside the tomb and the two men as we read in Luke at the beginning of the service those two uh, looked like men they were angels, appeared to them in dazzling white clothing, the women were struck In awe of that, they bowed down with their faces to the ground because they recognized that they were seeing something, uh, supernatural. And the angel gave them the instructions that Jesus had risen from the dead, called to the mind, called to their mind the prediction that Jesus gave concerning the fact that he would suffer and die and that he would rise again. And then the angel instructed the women to go into the city and to tell the disciples, um, what had happened. And the women went into the city and told the disciples what had happened. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene was already on her way to tell Peter and John. And once we understand that we're dealing with two different scenes, Mary Magdalene and the other women, all, listen to me, all of the contradictions and apparent discrepancies between the Gospels immediately vanish. That is the key to understanding how all of this fits together. Right? Now, we're all up to speed. Beginning in verse 3, we pick it up with Mary Magdalene with Peter and John. How do we know that it's John? You'll notice in verse 2, she ran and came to uh, to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And we've seen... That that is John's way of referring to himself. John is humble enough to name himself in the gospel without really naming himself. Or we should say he refers to himself without naming himself in the gospel. John is the other disciple. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He appears throughout the book. And uh, here he appears again. He was staying in Jerusalem with Peter. And Mary, after she ran from the tomb, met Peter and John. Uh, And so John is this other disciple that's mentioned throughout the text. And John refers to himself a few times before the end of verse 10. So she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now that was Mary, Mary Magdalene. That was her logical conclusion from what she saw. Remember, she did not go into the tomb with the other ladies. She did not see the angel like the other ladies. And she did not listen to the angel as the other women did. Mary Magdalene was by herself. All she saw was the stone rolled away from the tomb. And she came to the most logical, rational possible conclusion that she would have come to who would roll away that stone if not to move the body or to take the body. So she assumed that the body had been taken, and she left to tell Peter and John this, which is a rational thing to do, given that Peter and John were two of the principal apostles, disciples, and it would be very natural to run and to tell the two men who were the leaders among the disciples that now the body was gone, and that's what she assumed. That is what she reported to Peter and John. How do we know that Mary didn't go in and look inside the tomb and see? How do we know that she didn't see the angels, and how do we know that she didn't hear the angels? Because don't you think that Mary would have mentioned that to Peter and John when she reported to them what had happened? She came back and just reported to them what she saw. The stone was rolled away. Therefore, they must have moved the body. And we have no idea who did it. We have no idea who took it. So verse 3. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to the tomb. So Peter and John got up. And they ran to the tomb. And as they were going. uh, Verse 4. And the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. And came to the tomb first. Now, while while the other ladies were at the tomb, the angel appeared to the other women and said, go tell the disciples. Those women ran into the city or ran to tell the disciples. Peter and John, meanwhile, are inside the city being told that the body is gone. They were running out to the tomb. Now, one of the principal objections to the harmonization that I've just presented to you over the last couple of weeks is this. If that is how it happened, if that's what happened, that the women were outside coming into the city of Jerusalem and those men were inside leaving the city of Jerusalem to go out to the tomb, how is it that they didn't hit each other on the street? Because we have no record that the women reported to Peter and John that uh, on the way. In fact, John tells us that Peter and John got to the tomb, that they didn't see the other women, and that they were shocked to see that the tomb was empty. So why didn't they meet each other? And there's a number of different uh, ways of answering this. First, there's more than one entrance and exit to the city of Jerusalem up in that corner, the uh, northwest corner of the city of Jerusalem. In the wall, there were two gates very near to each other, very near to the garden tomb. So it's very possible that the women were coming in one gate while the disciples, Peter and John, were going out the other gate. It's also very possible that the women, having been told to go tell the disciples that, the, that Jesus had risen, that those women didn't even enter into the city of Jerusalem, but instead went to Bethany, where the other disciples had probably stayed. We don't know for sure, but where did the other ten or nine disciples go? Not Peter and John, we knew that Judas had hanged himself. So where were the other nine? Where did they go? Most most people think that the other disciples went out to Bethany to the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and stayed there through Saturday and into that Sunday morning. And if that's where the other disciples were, then those women who heard the angels say, Go tell the disciples that he is risen, they would have said, Mary Magdalene's already on her way in to tell Peter and John. She's already going to do that. Let's go to where the other disciples are at. So they might have immediately gone into the city and dispersed to go tell the other disciples. Or they might have gone right through the city or around the city on the way to Bethany to go tell the other disciples there. In which case, it's more than likely that they wouldn't have even had an opportunity to pass Peter and John on the way. Now, if you're Peter and John and you've just been told that somebody has rolled away the stone and they've taken away the body of the Lord and we don't know where they have laid him, and you immediately get up, you put on your sandals, your slippers, your Nikes, whatever it is that you got, and you bolt out the door on the way to the tomb, what do you think about on what would seem like a very long run from inside the city of Jerusalem out to the tomb? What would go through your mind? We're not told what went through their mind, but we can speculate a little bit, can't we? We might wonder to ourselves, why would anybody steal the body? Who would steal the body? What if I get there and the body is actually there? What if I get there and the body is not there? Who would have a motive to steal the body? Could it be one of the other disciples? Could it have been Bartholomew or Thomas Or James? Could it have been one of them? And why would they have taken the body? And if they took the body, where would they have put the body? Could it be Pilate took the body, arranged to have the Romans take the body? But why would the Romans want the body? They're not in the habit of moving bodies after they're crucified. They just crucify these victims and then leave them be. They don't care what happens to the body. What motive would Pilate have for taking the body? What about the Jewish leadership? Maybe the Jewish leadership took the body. But again, what motive do they have for taking the body? What possible reason could they have for that? And if they did take the body, where did they put the body? Who do I talk to to find out where the body is? Or maybe it was just grave robbers. Somebody who came in, rolled away the stone, went in to, to pillage the dead body and take whatever valuables are left behind. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe the body is not gone at all. But if the body is gone, is it possible? No, that's not possible. Certainly somebody had to have taken the body, Right. Certainly somebody had to have taken the body. So Peter and John arrived at the tomb, and John notes that he arrived first. Now, he's the other disciple who outran Peter. It's curious to me that John mentions this. And by the way, he doesn't just mention it once. He mentions that he arrived at the tomb three times, right? Peter who followed him, and then down in verse 8, again, the disciple who got there first. Now, John is humble enough not to give us his name anywhere in the book. But maybe this is just my projection on John but he can't pass up the opportunity to mention three times that he outran Peter on the way to the tomb. Because that's what I would do if I had outrun Peter. I would mention that I had outrun Peter three times on the way to the tomb. So why is it that John arrived at the tomb first? Why did he outrun Peter? You'd be surprised at how much ink has been spilled trying to explain this. Some suggested that John was a bit younger than Peter. Peter being the elder of the two would have been a little bit slower. That's possible, though I'm sure that there are faster, uh, older people, even in our congregation, who could outrun me if if the need arose. So maybe it wasn't that Peter was older, though there is biblical evidence, by the way, for the fact that Peter was older than John. John outlived all the other apostles. John lived the oldest and died somewhere up around, some people put it, around 90 A.D., which is when some people think that John was written that late in the first century. Uh, Peter was dead long before that, almost 30 years prior to that. So John did outlive some of those earlier, uh, those other disciples, and John may have been among the youngest of the 12, maybe in his early 20s at, at the time of these events. And so if that's the case, then he easily probably could have outrun Peter. Some have suggested that Peter's gait was a bit slower and sort of mopey, Having denied the Lord, having suffered through all day Saturday, and now hearing this, he just doesn't want to have to deal with the missing body and finding out who took it and why they took it and where they put it. And so Peter's kind of jogging, but then stops and mopes out to the tomb. But John bolts. I don't know that that's the case. Some have suggested that John be more familiar with the surroundings in the city of Jerusalem, that he knew right where to go, but Peter got lost. And so Peter's wandering around the city looking. Now, see, all this is speculation. Ultimately, we have no idea why it is that John got to the tomb first. But this whole account does have an eyewitness flavor to it, does it not? That John would say, I got there first, I arrived first at the tomb. I think that maybe the designation here, uh, the, the the text is intended to indicate to us the difference in the temperaments. Uh, John, being much faster, did arrive at the tomb, but look what John does when he got to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So this is John's John is a bit slower to enter into the tomb, and he didn't even go in until Peter got there. And then when Peter shows up, Peter ran right past him. Now, it may be that that difference in how they approach the tomb is indicative of their characteristic and their personality, uh, their character and their personality. John being a bit more thoughtful, a bit more slow, a bit more methodical, maybe a bit more pensive, deeply thinking about this observing it, he came up to the tomb and stooping down, he looked in, and what did he see? He saw the linen wrappings lying there. And he's thinking about this, and maybe not even sure whether he wants to go in or not. Why didn't he step into the tomb? It's possible that John thought this is sacred holy ground, this is where the Lord was buried. It's possible that he was maybe waiting for Peter, his elder, to show up and for some direction or some leadership. But when Peter got on the scene, what did Peter do? Rushes right into the tomb, right? If we know anything about Peter, it's what? He is a brash, impetuous, Initiative-taking, ambitious man who, where angels fear to tread, Peter goes forth. That's how Peter typically handled everything. And giving, giving no thought really to what might, he might find inside, or even bothering to look inside. When he showed up, he immediately went in. And notice that John says what Peter saw. Verse 6, And Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head. Not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now this whole thing, this whole scene and how John describes it is very, is very curious to me. It's interesting to me because there are only two gospel writers that mention the linen wrappings being in the empty tomb. Luke and John. Now remember, at the end of of the passage that we read at the beginning of our service, Luke 24, verse 12. It says that Peter ran to the tomb and he left there marveling. And Luke also mentions the linen wrappings that were left behind. Matthew and Mark don't. doesn't mean that they didn't know about it. Again, it's just a difference in the way that they described the the scene. But of all of the gospel writers, John gives the most attention and gives us the most detail about these linen wrappings. Unfortunately, John doesn't give us enough, at least to satisfy my curiosity as to what that scene looked like. John notes that from outside the tomb, he could look in and he could see the linen wrappings lying there. Now, remember, it's a, it is a, a tomb that is carved out of rock with a round entryway. It was big enough probably for a, a grown person to stand up inside of that. But at some point along the back or along the side of that tomb was a, uh, a, a large uh, stone slab that was carved out of the limestone rock on which they would have laid the body. John, looking in, is able to see that the linen wrappings are lying there, but he didn't see the head cloth lying by itself. But Peter, when he showed up, rushed into the tomb and saw the linen wrappings lying there and the head cloth. And then John mentions that the head cloth was folded up separately and placed by itself. Now, I I would imagine that if we, if I selected five of you at random and asked you to describe to me what we just read, we might come up with five slightly different pictures of what we would see inside the tomb, just from the details that are here. Ultimately we cannot know for sure exactly what the scene looked like other than the fact that the linen wrappings were lying there and the headpiece folded up separate by itself. I'm going to give you a couple of possibilities. Remember what we mean when we talk about the linen wrappings, the burial clothes. We talked about this at the end of chapter 19. Do you remember how the Jews would bury people? They would take strips of linen and they would tie strips of linen around the feet to keep the feet up like this instead of folding out. They would tie strips of linen around the arms and the hands to keep them folded in front, to keep the body nice and tight. And they would tie a strip of linen around the mouth, underneath the jaw, and up over top of the head to keep the jaw closed. And all of that was so that when rigor mortis set in, the body would be easy to handle and easy to deal with, and it wouldn't be um, stiffened in an unpresentable or unkindly looking uh, form. And so there are, and the the gospel writers also record that there was one large linen cloth that was used as part of wrapping up the body. So there are strips of linen as well as a linen cloth. Now, when you read the scene, as we just described it, as John just described it, and we read it here in John, you may be picturing in your mind the linen cloths wrapped up around a body in a mummy form, right? Like strips wrapped up each leg and around the arms and around the whole thing like you would picture a mummy looking and that those linen cloths or strips were lying there, kind of caved in on the top or without a body inside, as if the body had resurrected and passed through the cloth. But we know that there was one large cloth that was part of this, because some of the Gospel writers record them wrapping his body in the or A cloth. There was a single large cloth, as well as strips of linen together. Now, Dave Rich told me a couple weeks ago that he once heard an entire sermon on just the folded-up headpiece. An entire sermon just on that. Now, I've had a, a difficult time coming up with an entire sermon on verses 3 through 10. There's no way, even, there's no way that I'm creative enough to come up with a whole sermon just on the folded up headpiece. But we want to know what is the significance of the folded up headpiece? And is that what it looked like? Did it look like just a bunch of, a bunch of strips of cloth and a large cloth just sort of laying there as if the body had passed through it? And then the resurrected Lord took the headpiece and placed it off to the side. And what is the headpiece? What is the headpiece? The King James translates that word, and it's the Greek word sudarion. The King James translates that napkin, as if something you would wipe your face with. The New King James translates it handkerchief. The NASB and the ESB both translated as face cloth, and the NIV translates it burial cloth. But what was it? Was it a handkerchief, a face cloth, a burial cloth? What was that used for? I think the best guess if we are to guess, is that this referred to the strip, either the strip of of cloth that was wrapped around the head this way to hold the mouth shut, or it was the the piece of cloth that was rolled up tightly and formed and laid on the slab around the head to keep the head straight forward. It is one of those two pieces of cloth that was part of the burial uh, cloth that were used. So the fact that the the head cloth was folded up, and not rolled up, the, the word actually means better folded up, folded up and placed separate from the rest, indicates to us something significant, and that is that what John and Peter observed was not a scene of chaos, but a scene of order. At first, I pictured these burial cloths that were just as if the body had vanished and just collapsed into one spot, but then the Lord rummaged through that and found the head cloth and took that out and folded it up and put it separate. But I don't think that that's what's being indicated. I think what the picture that we should have in our minds of this is that all of those burial cloths were picked up and placed in an orderly location in the tomb. The headpiece was picked up and placed separately. Now, what type of a sermon can you get out of the fact that the headpiece was picked up and put separately? I suppose we could say, well, maybe it was folded up in a trifold, you know, like the members of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together, a little trifold thing and it was put separate from the rest of the claws. The rest of the claws the are associated with the body and the head claws associated with the head and, Christ is the head of the church, and he's different from the body, which is what we are, and we're part of his body, and so that which is represented separate from the body is transcendent, like Christ is above his church, and... I know, yeah, you say, wow, I would say the same thing. Dave, you're free to use that if you want, because you could get a whole sermon out of that next time you preach. But I don't think that that's what John is trying to indicate for us. I don't think that's what John's trying to describe. I think what John is trying to describe is that when he stepped into the tomb, he saw the grave clothes, and they were, they were orderly. Not as if somebody had just vanished, but as if the grave clothes themselves had also been folded up, but there was something unique, the headpiece. Maybe the last thing that the Lord took off, the headpiece was likewise folded up and placed by itself. There was order there. And why is this significant? Because immediately this would indicate to Peter and John that the scene that they were observing was not the scene of a grave robbery. Grave robbers would not take the time to unwrap the body. They wouldn't want to unwrap the body. That body had been disfigured and bruised, and beaten, and it was bloody. It was not a pretty scene. Anybody interested in taking or stealing the body would not have taken the time to unwrap it. Why would the Romans unwrap the body if they took it? Why would the disciples unwrap the body if they took it? Why would a grave robber unwrap the body if they took it? All of those claws, bound up as it was, folded up as it was, would be much easier to transport the body in that than to unwrap the body and to be left with a naked corpse. And furthermore, even if they did unwrap the body, why would a grave robber take the time to fold all of it up nicely and put it up on the shelf as if it were a scene of order? They would take the the, the, the clothing and the strips off of the body and leave them scattered around the tomb. But that's not what Peter and John saw. And if you were Detective Columbo and you walked into the scene of that tomb with your hands in your overly worn uh, trench coat, you would look around the inside of this and say, this is not the scene of a grave robbery. Nobody took this body. Nobody who would take the body would bother to unwrap it, and nobody who would unwrap it would bother to fold all of this up and place it neatly inside of the tomb. That is why verse 8 says that when John entered and he saw these things, he what? He believed. He believed. Now here's what's interesting about John's notation of belief here. As we've gone through John, we have seen John use the word belief in a number of different ways. We've seen him use belief in terms of describing true believers, people who believe and are saved, and we've seen him describe uh, those who believe with a false belief or a fake belief that doesn't actually save. It's just an intellectual assent And John has warned us about the, the benefits and the blessings to true believers and the dangers of that false belief, that false confidence of being a false convert. We've seen John describe that. We have seen John tell us that we must believe and that we need to believe and to give us evidence to believe and to tell us that we are to believe upon the evidence. But here's what's interesting about this word belief. In this context, for the first time, we have a reference to John himself what? Believing. This is the first time John says, I believed. Now, that does not mean, and get this carefully, that does not mean that up to this point, John did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah or that he didn't believe that he was the Son of God or that he didn't believe in him, that he was God in human flesh. That doesn't mean that. It means that John at that moment believed what? The resurrection, because that's what the context is describing. Look at verse 10 or verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So what did John believe? He believed the resurrection. That's what he's describing. At that moment, the light dawned. At that moment, something came into John's head. And he thought to himself, this is not a grave robbery. They have not taken the body. They have not put it somewhere else. It is not a gardener. It's not one of the disciples. It's not the Jewish leadership. It's not Pilate and the Romans. None of them did this. Nobody would would leave this scene if they just took the body. Nobody would leave the scene like this. At that moment, John realized he is risen. Now, here's two things very unique and significant about John's belief. Number one, notice that John's belief was apart from anything that he saw in terms of the person of Christ. Now, at the end of chapter 20, John speaks of Thomas, who Thomas would not believe unless he put his hands in the prince, his fingers in the prints of his hands and his side. Thomas would not believe unless he saw it. And when Thomas finally saw the risen Christ, Thomas believed and confessed, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said to him, You have seen me and have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. John falls into this camp of those who believed without seeing, at least the risen Christ. Now, in some sense, John believed because of what he saw. He saw an empty tomb. He saw empty grave clothes. He saw a scene that was orderly and a body that was gone. And John put two and two together. And he realized at that point his body has not been taken. He has been raised from the dead. So he believed in the resurrection Apart from, though, seeing anything of the risen Christ. Now, John would later see Jesus raised from the dead. He would later have a conversation with the risen Lord. But at this point, John is believing based upon not seeing Christ, but upon seeing this and then believing what God has said. The second thing to notice is that John's belief was apart from what Scripture said. It was apart from his understanding of Scripture. That's what verse 9 is about. When John says, for as yet they, meaning Peter and John, and probably you could lump into that group all of the rest of the disciples as well. They did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So John's belief that Jesus had risen from the dead was not because he looked at the Old Testament and said, well, it must be so. Because John is confessing to us, I believed, but I didn't yet understand how this connected with what the scripture said. So you could, you could ask John, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Do you believe he has risen? Yes. How does that fit with the Old Covenant, with the Old Testament? I don't know. Right At this point, John simply believes that Christ is risen, but he, he can't explain that to you. He couldn't have explained to you how the Old Testament taught that this must happen. That would come later on. In Psalms chapter 16, when David says, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Peter would quote that on Pentecost morning in Acts chapter 2 saying that that thing which David spoke in Psalm 16, because David's tomb is with us to this day and he is rotting in his own tomb, because that did not refer specifically to David ultimately, but it must refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. But John could have drawn that connection between an empty tomb and Psalm 16, where God promised that he would not allow his holy one, his anointed one to undergo decay. John couldn't have drawn the the line between the resurrection on that Sunday morning and Psalm 22. Do you remember Psalm 22? My bones are out of joint. My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. I I am pierced through. They gamble for my garments. Remember that? It describes ultimately that picture of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. But then the psalmist David says in Psalm 22, at the end of that, I have been vindicated. The Lord heard my cry. He raised me up and I have proclaimed his excellencies to the people. How is it that this one who suffered and died, in the way that David would describe this, could be raised up and vindicated and declare the excellencies of God to the people? Well, if the sufferings of the Lord in Psalm 22 are pictured and portrayed through David, then also is that vindication and that resurrection ultimately when David says, I have been raised up and I proclaim the excellencies of God to the people. There's a connection there. There's a foreshadowing of the resurrection. Or how about Psalm, uh, not Psalm 53, Isaiah 53, where it says he was bruised for our sake. He was wounded for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. He poured out himself unto death. And yet, Isaiah 53 says, he rejoiced to see his offspring and he gathered in and divided the booty with the strong. How is it this one who poured out himself to death could also rejoice to see those who have come forth because of his death? And how is it that that same one who poured himself out unto death could in the end say that he divided up the booty with the strong and brings in the spoils of God's people? How could that happen? Only by the resurrection. John didn't even at this point understand that the entire Davidic covenant, the entire promise to David, hinged upon the resurrection. How is it possible that God would raise up a descendant of David to sit on David's throne and establish the kingdom who would rule and reign forever and never die? When David's son Solomon reigned and he died, And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, reigned and he died. And Rehoboam's son, Jehoahaz, whoever it was, he reigned and he died. And all of these kings, in consecutive number, reigned, they came to the throne, they reigned and they ruled and they died and they passed away. And you would look generation after generation, king after king, and say, who and when is this one going to come who will be able to reign on the throne of David and never die? And his reign will be forever. And the expanse of his kingdom will be forever. And the increase of his kingdom will be forever. How can that possibly be? How can somebody reign forever? If that greater son of David were to live and to die and to rise again so that death no longer has dominion over him, then he could sit on David's throne and he could rule and reign forever. Right? All of the Old Testament promise was hinged upon this. But at this point, all John knows is he's risen. Explain it from the Old Testament, John. I can't. I know this much. He's risen. Tell me how it fits into the Old Covenant. I can't. How does it fulfill the, the promise of David? I, I, I can't, I don't get that. I did, he did, he said, he's confessing to us, I did not yet know how this fit with the Scriptures or that the Scriptures taught that this must happen. He didn't remember that promise, but he did know this one thing, that there was no body there, that the tomb was empty, and that he was risen. That much David, that much John knew. Now, you and I can sympathize with that in a number of different ways. Uh, I certainly can. I remember that I believed that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh long before I could explain that doctrine to you. Right? I believed that to be true. I believed that he was divine. I believed he was the Son of God. I believed he was deity in human flesh long before I could explain to you how that was even possible. Or long before I could even defend that from Scripture. I could have a Jehovah's Witness come to my door, and they're an easy target. And they would twist me into a theological pretzel. I would not be able to answer their objections. But I knew this much that this man was the son of God. I believed in the resurrection of Christ before I could ever have defended the disharmony between the Gospels to you. Before I could have ever explained it from the Old Testament or ever anticipated it from the, from the Old Testament. Or known what the prophets predicted or explained to you what the New Testament teaches about this. But I did believe that he was risen long before I could articulate or defend that doctrine to you. I believed in substitutionary atonement. That Christ died for sinners. And that he died in my place and he bore my sin. I believed that long before I could even spell the word substitution. I was 15 years old when I got saved. I believed that doctrine long before I could even spell substitutionary atonement. Or before I even knew what an atonement was. Or why it was necessary. Or how it was a, a fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices and the feasts and, 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 and uh, all of the animal sacrifices. But I believed it. Most of what I have come to believe about scripture I believed before I was able ever able to understand it fully. That, is that not the path of almost every Christian in this place? We believe these things to be true. Why? On the testimony of Scripture. Do we understand it fully? No, but we grow in that. And that's what John's saying. I believe this before I can even explain it. And then they went from there and they went to their own house. Uh, Luke chapter 24 4, verse 12 says that when Peter was there, he saw this. And it says that he was amazed at what he saw. And the word means uh, in awe or wondered at what he saw. Now, Peter and John... They ran at different paces, they entered the tomb in a different way, and they left in a different condition. It seems that Peter took a little bit longer than John. John believed when he saw this. Peter, Luke 24, verse 12 says, left there wondering and amazed at what he saw. But it doesn't say that he believed. I think it would be safe to say that John left the tomb that day believing, Peter left the tomb that day bewildered. He didn't know what to make of it. Now, Peter would believe, because Peter, before this day was up, would see the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something, the last thing that's kind of curious about all of these details is how, I think this is worth noting, how the enemies of the Lord Jesus anticipated and expected the resurrection or at least remembered the promise of the resurrection. Since they they expected it, they remembered the promise of the resurrection and his disciples did not. That's what's interesting. The, The Jewish leadership, they went in to Pilate, remember? This deceiver said while he was alive that he would rise again. Now he may have worked all of this out with the disciples so that if he ever died, that they would take the body and preach a resurrection. So we need to make sure that we secure the body. Are you good with this, Pilate? I'm good with this. Take a guard. Go do it. And they did it. The enemies of the Lord Jesus remembered his promises and his prediction that he would rise again. But the disciples did not. The angel had to tell them, remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners and be crucified and rise again? Remember that prediction? Remember it. That's what he said. The enemies of the Lord Jesus remembered that, but the disciples did not. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb is the central defining event of human history. This is the central event of the Christian faith. Your your faith in Jesus Christ rises or falls on the reality of an empty tomb. If what we are reading here is the truth of history, then everything changes. Everything is different. If what we are reading here is not actual history, then everything that we believe and everything that we think and all of our theology and our faith is utterly and completely meaningless. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central cornerstone of the Christian faith. That makes the Christian faith ultimately verifiable and falsifiable. It's verifiable in this. If it actually happened, then Christianity is true. And everything the Bible claims is true. And it is not just true, it is true truth. But if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then everything the Bible says is false. It's all lies. It's all damnable nonsense and heresy. It's all stupid, wishful thinking and make-believe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is either the greatest feat in human history or it is the grandest fraud ever foisted on the minds of men. It is one of those two things. The Christian faith rises or falls on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we are in the camp of those who must believe without seeing. There is a blessing for those who believe without seeing. Now, plenty of people after the resurrection saw... The Lord. John was one of them, but he was not the first of them. He was one of them, but he was not the first. The first one was Mary Magdalene. And that's starting in verse 11, which we will pick up next week. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful that you have brought us to understand and to know the truth before we fully understood it. You opened our eyes to behold what is true and to know it and to believe it. And you gave us faith to believe and you turned our hearts from sin. And you brought us that understanding and that light when we were undeserving of it and when we were unable in ourselves to see it or to understand it. And yet you, you brought us to faith in your son. We thank you for that. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ, which is the greatest fact of human history. It is not a fraud. It is not a hoax. We have not believed cleverly devised fables. We have believed solidly upon your word, the testimony of Scripture, the anticipation of the prophets, and your word which is true. Thank you for our faith. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ. And thank you for for confirming our hearts in these things. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time.